Hello and welcome back. This is the Soybean Pest Podcast. It's July 9th, 2021. This is season 12, episode four. And I'm Matt O'Neill. And next to me in the Zoom is... Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Hodson. Hey, Erin. How you doing? I'm doing okay. All right. All right. Um, good to see you. The head nod works in an yes, odd- yes, you too, Matt. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something more. It's hard when we're doing this over screens. Yeah, um, I, I got to get on the tech side of things, Aaron. I got to figure out how to hook up that microphone to this new computer. Maybe one of our listeners could uh, send me uh, some info on how to hook up a microphone to a new MacBook Pro without any of the USB ports. Ugh, driving me crazy. You can, you're not using an external mic? No, no. Oh, come on, Matt. Yeah, you need to get with it. I know, I know. I'm I'm deficient in many ways, uh, but I'm not deficient in topics to talk about today for our podcast. Uh, but before I do, I want to give a shout out to Mary Celeste. Uh, she's one of our listeners who's been using the podcast to help her uh, uh, get over some um, some recent uh, uh, medical issues. She's recovering. And uh, apparently, our soothing tone helps her relax. How's oh, it? hey. Yeah. <laughs> hey, girl. Are hey, you sleeping now? <laughs> yeah, get better. Yeah. So let's try to put her to sleep with some updates on pest activity throughout the state. Okay. What are you hearing, Aaron? Do you remember back in a time, back when a time when you studied rootworms? So long ago, but yes. Okay. Yeah, well, they're hot and heavy right now. Um, Westerns and Northerns, uh, the adults are emerging all over the place. We are seeing some pretty significant injury. And I'm not sure like how much you keep up with the rootworm game. But there's been, been some problems. I've been out of the rootworm mafia for a while. Yeah. but uh... Yeah, you may, you may have heard there's some problems with the performance uh, with BT for rootworms, uh, Western corn rootworm in Iowa for a long time. Yeah. And um, so industry has put a lot of eggs into a basket of RNAi. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got my first chance to do some root assessment, root injury assessments last week, or sorry, this week at the Northeastern Farm near Nashua. Yeah. And yeah. I got to say, not that impressed. Um, some of the plants that I saw, so the, the Smart Stacks Pro, which is very limited availability this year, so that's uh, Smart Stack Pro is is it two BT toxins and the RNAi? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's an eight way stack. So you have two insect or two herbicides, two rootworm traits, and then the um, you have four above ground insect traits plus the RNAi. Which um, and Aaron, um, I'm I'm a little uneducated on this. Um, the for the rootworm in this stack there are. Is it, it there are three toxins? There's two BTs, and then is the RNAi specific to rootworms? Yeah, so you have the two cry traits 34, 35 AB1 and cry 3 BB1, which you know that's been out commercialized for a while. But the new, the novel part of the Smart Stacks Pro is the RNAi, and it would be specific to northern and western corn rootworm, to my knowledge. It's not going to affect other species within that family or that genus. Um, so it's very targeted, um, which it would cause a, a silencing, like a gene silencing of some really critical protein expression. So in the, uh, in the diabrotica, in the, the, yep. the, this genus of uh, insects, the rootworms that attack corn. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I tried to get a better understanding of how RNAi works because I'm not a geneticist. And so um, I think if you remember back when you were studying rootworms, you know, if they, if they consume the toxin and they're susceptible, they're going to stop feeding almost right away and um, die within a few days, basically septicemia. Uh, what I could gather from this is that if you had a susceptible rootworm, they will continue to feed for about four, five, six days. And it takes That's that long. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. So it takes a while for them to die, but basically in the same way, um, the, the, um, the interference part of this technology binds to the midgut and the, the like stomach basically um, doesn't work anymore. So anyway, um, I was not impressed. I saw some plants up at the Northeastern farm that had more than a full node of injury. So that is, you know, blows way past that economic threshold. Um, it was sort of under worst case scenario, continuous corn with a trap crop. I mean, so it was a demo plot for sure, but still the, the injury was really extensive. And I'm going to go to the Southeastern farm on Monday and do another root dig for SmartStacks Pro. So I'll be able to give you some more updates there. But so far that, you know, I saw a handful of plants and I'm like, oh, I'm surprised the injury was so significant. So it's the goal with that, not just to protect the corn from uh, the larvae feeding on the roots, but also to kill the adult. So did you see evidence that uh, adult emergence had been reduced on these Smart Stack Pro corn lines? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if I'm gonna answer your question right, but I think the adults would be susceptible, but I think oh, that's no. only, okay. No. What I meant, yeah, yeah, that's that's another layer. Um, what I meant is um, that five to six days of feeding that can continue to occur in the in the soil by the larvae on the roots. Do the do the um, do the larvae eventually die? Yes. So, yeah. And, and are they killing a substantial uh, like ninety nine percent of the larvae, or is there still some adult emergence even on this? RNAi corn. Yeah, in some of the research papers that I tried to digest before these field days is that they have an artificial diet, which they can incorporate the RNAi, and they did some like real plant bioassays with the transgenic, and you did have survivors both ways through the artificial diet and through actual plants. And so even from, you know, even before it's commercially launched, you had some individuals that could bypass this RNAi strategy. Yeah. So is the survival because the expression of the RNAi molecules uh, insufficient to, you know, dose the rootworms such that the larvae die? Or is mm. it that there are already subpopulations of rootworms that are resistant to this RNAi uh, toxin? Great questions that I don't know the answers to. Um, the The one paper I read in particular showed that larvae that consumed the RNAi were definitely smaller. And so there was some you know, fitness costs. And so I don't know if they just weren't able to continue development or if they starved to death or, or what. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure like the mortality rate for a susceptible yeah. individual. And, and those survival, uh, the, the evidence of survival, was that coming from the field or from lab assays? 
I think the one that the one that I was looking at was through the artificial diet. Okay. Yeah, they had some larvae that you could tell were about half the size of a one feeding on a like a refuge or like a non-treated plant. Uh, wow, this is uh, really really interesting. And even though we're the soybean pest podcast, uh, if you're growing soybeans, you're growing corn, right? So yeah, yeah. I just wanted to bring it up because that when I see first start to see adults in the field. It is my cue to recommend to farmers and agronomists to assess root injury. So no matter what strategy or strategies they might be using, it's a good time to check while the injury is fresh. And so I started to see some tassels out there as well. That's also another cue is that the larvae are wrapping up their feeding cycle and just to kind of see where you are. So especially if you are in continuous corn and you do this over time, you would see injury scores that could go, hopefully, you know, they're not going to climb up dramatically, but, you know, maybe the best you could hope for is that they stay level. And the getting it fresh, estimating the injury uh, now is critical because the plant's going to invest some regrowth down there to make up for the injured roots, right? Yeah. Some hybrids especially can put on like a little, I don't know if you would call it like bottle brushing. They put on a lot of really fine hairs. And so, this is not going to be as important for those plants that are super injured, you know, where you have like big, big roots gone. But if you're starting to, on the edge of like pitting, tunneling, sort of, um, you know, like like uh, a little bit less pressure, that's when you want to catch it. I mean, when it's a really bad, it's really bad. You don't need to, you know, have an expert tell you, but um, you'd want to catch it on the early side. So um, with some hybrids, they can regrow, especially it's only the beginning of July. You know, they have a long time to grow. So it will sort of mask some of that initial feeding that you might see. And even though regrowth is a good thing, it's uh, less than ideal because you don't want the plant regrowing roots that it should have established, you know, last month. You want it putting growth into the ear, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's nice that there is that potential recovery but it's it's less than ideal for what we really want which is a lot of growth in the ears yeah you want that above ground like all the energy put into that ear at this point yeah and so is there much anybody can do now for rootworms in terms of management most of them my understanding from back when i was in the rootworm game was yeah the management decisions were made at planting and yeah, maybe a little bit after in terms of what varieties you picked, if you use a soil insecticide, uh, and then that was pretty much it. Now, there are some parts of the world where they might spray for the adults because the adults are so numerous that they might clip silks, but that's not really an issue here, right? We're mostly worried about the larval damage. I mean, my my recommendation, and this is based off of research done by Dr. Aaron Gassman, another corn rootwormologist, is that you're right. The seed selection and chemical selection that people are making, you know, it's going to be this fall. And so the injury assessments that they're doing now is to help them make a better decision for next growing season. And that um, after you plant, there are no effective, in my mind, effective rescue treatments. So there were people talking about post-emergent sprays uh, targeted to the base of the plants to try and combat larvae. And then, as you mentioned, the adult control. And the efficacy of both of these approaches is really all over the place. And so, uh, you know, I, I just can't recommend something that I feel like is, is not consistently performing. So I'd rather 
put my time and energy into a thoughtful seed and, and chemistry program for the following season. Yeah, so back when I, again, in the day when I was studying rootworms, the the go-to recommendation was to rotate. Yeah. You know, the rootworms cannot survive on soybeans. Those eggs are laid now. So next year, uh, if you were planting soybeans, they're going to all die. You would wipe out the population in that area. Now, having said that, there are a couple of wrinkles to that recommendation. We've got northern corn rootworms whose eggs can go through what's called a prolonged diapause of many years, such that the eggs might hatch not next year, but the year after when you've put corn back in. So you might have a rootworm problem there. And then out of Illinois came the rotation resistant variant that miraculously, mysteriously leaves corn and lays its eggs in soybeans, even though it's a terrible host for the larvae and the adult. It somehow knows that, you know, next year, even though the mother won't be alive, those eggs laid in a soybean field are going to thrive in a, in a corn field. Do we have any evidence of those in Iowa? Yeah, we have both of the variants in Iowa and in sort of the, the northeastern corner of Iowa. You could actually have both of the variants at the same time. So it does make that crop rotation effectiveness a little bit more complicated. But in my experience, the, the variants that you could experience are pretty patchy. It's not a widespread, every cornfield has it in Iowa. So, you know, still by far the most effective thing that someone could do is not grow corn. And so to mix up the rotation every two, three, four, five years away from corn to help bring back some flexibility the next time you do plant corn, you'd have more options. All right. Yeah. Uh, so rootworms. They're the hot and heavy. Yeah. What else? Yeah. And then uh, I was in northern Iowa quite a bit this week. And some things that I noted was basically it was hard to find a soybean aphid which is sad for our research programs, but good for farmers. Yeah, for um, but it was easy to find potato leafhopper and the red-headed flea beetle. I probably haven't seen, um, especially at Sutherland at the Northwest Research Farm, um, probably a couple per plant. I thought like I've never seen that level. Um, I didn't really see any def defoliation or any signs of feeding injury, but uh, the number of flea beetles was incredibly high. What's a recommendation for flea beetles? I, I don't know. I, and I couldn't see like pieces missing. I couldn't see defoliation. And without Japanese beetles or caterpillars present, the yeah. leaves look great. And so I just, I just noted a lot of them. I don't even know. I assume soybean is a host, but it just didn't look like they were doing a lot of feeding. So I would yeah. just leave them alone for now. You know, um, for next week, I'm going to look up flea beetles. Cause I, it, uh, kind of a pest I guess it's yeah. seen it in textbooks and in documents but never something that I, I've ever been asked about um yeah we have a couple of species and I think when I first started at Iowa State people really cared about the corn flea beetle because it vectors Stewart's will and corn and so that is the only reason I I was really kind of looking hard because I was like well maybe even if they're not feeding too much, are they vectoring some sort of disease in soybean? You know, that'd be a game changer if that happened. But the plants look great. Um, and like I said, I didn't really, see any signs of defoliation. The plants looked great. 
because um, I want to trans- green deserts, Matt. Well, there's that too, but um, the drought that we've been under. Um, I, when I've driven around central Iowa and out uh, to the western, a little bit western, boy, corn looks terrible. Soybeans look stunted. I mean, real short. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is, uh, it's been a rough growing season. So you were up in the northern part of Iowa, which I thought was even drier than central Iowa, but yet you're seeing plants that look good? I mean, some fields definitely look drought stress and some really spiky pineapple corn. But um, the farm, the research farms that I were at, the crops look pretty good. Uh, I would expect to see grasshoppers, two-spotted spider mite, like that type of injury. And I'm not really seeing any activity at all. And there's, I think you're right about central Iowa. We've missed some of the, the latest rains, except for except for today. It's raining right. right now. But um, yeah, it's been, um, there's some areas of the state that have gotten a little bit of relief and it's really perked up those those fields. Yeah, uh, celebrate the rain that we got uh, last 48 hours or so. We're, we, last night we got an inch and a quarter and it's still raining. It's supposed to rain throughout the weekend. A little bit of a, a, a tease a little that we got the rain now when it's probably too late for improving or addressing yield. But um, you know, it's a really critical time because um, the ears are forming right now in corn. And uh, of course, soybean is, is flowering. And so there's going to be some pot and seed development. So I think Farmers will take whatever they can get, but um, it's probably not going to be bin busting record years for yield in Iowa, but certainly the rain does help. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't turn it away, but oh, yeah. uh, but it's unfortunate that it came kind of this late in the growing season. Yeah. I'm, I've been noticing in some plants, the, uh, especially in corn, you know, the height of the crop is lower than it would have usually been for this time of year. And um, anyway... Damage is done, but we'll take what we can get. Um, you know, I was talking with some of your crew at our lab meeting about their weekly trips up to Sutherland. And yeah. they were saying, yeah, we're not really seeing much of anything, uh, not just aphids, but all kinds of critters that they'd be looking for, especially defoliators. And we joked that yeah, it'd be nice if you had a heat dome that you know stayed over Iowa for a couple of weeks and just you know wiped out <laughs> the majority of insect life. I've been noticing a lot of insects um, adult insects dead on the ground uh, because they, I, I think they just uh, dried out. You know, Japanese beetles that uh, couldn't make it anymore, uh, dragonflies, uh, some other beetles. And in areas where, especially like urban areas, uh, which are even hotter than the countryside, it's uh, and dry. Boy, it's uh, it's it's hard on uh, on insects, but anyway, we got some rain. Things are going to pick up. I, I hear you. You're not seeing aphids. I just want to end, if, if we can, on, aph- on uh, some aphid talk in this segment. We're getting cooler weather now, and the temperatures drop by like 20 degrees. We're into the 70s. Yeah, uh, this feels rain, nice. Yeah, yeah. But if we did have aphids, if there were some pockets out there the weather's playing into their strengths, right? Yeah, definitely. I'm curious uh, if you've heard anything north of us, if Minnesota or the Dakotas are seeing some aphid issues, because even if we 
don't have them in the state and they do, we might get some migrations down in the next week or so. Yeah, I think um, talking with Bruce, there are some fields that have soybean aphid in the southern, southwestern part of Minnesota, but I have not heard anything from the Dakotas, um, Wisconsin, or, or other places yet. So maybe it just has a slow start. Well, um, wish them the best of luck up there. We'll continue scouting down here. Any other final pest updates that we should talk about? Um, the only thing that was exciting from my point of view is that the farm at Sutherland is infested with soybean gall midge. So this is at a much higher level than it was in 2020. So 19 high levels, 20 low, and now 21 back up. So um, it's interesting that it's sort of following a two-year cycle where we're starting to see plants that have um, basically have lots of larvae at the base and they're wilting. And I would imagine by the time the crew visits next week, you'll start to see some plant death. Um, ben, your new student brought us some infested plants that we yeah. pulled the larvae out of and uh, attempted to feed to ground beetles. Yeah, thought, did they like them? Um, we had a mix of uh, ground beetle species. So ground beetles, carabids, uh, they're a mix of species in Iowa. I think we had about five or six that we uh, pulled from a light trap that Marlon Rice uh, runs. And, yeah. um, you know, we put five in a container with a ground beetle and overnight some, uh, let's say some were missing. Uh, there was one species, I think it's Harpalus pennsylvanicus, which is a fairly common uh, ground beetle and throughout the Midwest there were only three remaining in the container after 24 hours. Okay. Uh, we did see some eat them. Uh, a couple individuals, you know, when we were setting up the experiment, we did see them, uh, so the adults start, these adult beetles start chewing on uh, some of the, the midge larvae. But I gotta say the midge larvae are incredibly mobile. They do this yes. like clicking thing where yes. they like, curl up and then spring out and and they were uh, jumping out of the petri dish and uh, then they would just crawl around and we had some filter paper and they would get in the filter paper and mm -hmm. find little cracks and crevices and very mobile yeah i was i was surprised uh given how small they are how active they were and i think i think some of the ground beetles just couldn't find them you know, yeah. they're, they're not that big i don't know how nutritious they are so um Maybe. Well, like a true fly that, you know, they're legless too. So that, you know, they're just using like, they must have like good abdominal muscles or something to like flex and fling. You can see in the, uh, on the microscope, the uh, six pack that these oh, have. Like nice. the, yeah, they're pretty strong. Nice. But anyway, we, Is we that can the title of the podcast? Flex and fling. Flex and fling. Yep. That's it. Ooh, all right, so that's a nice segue into our, we need some music for this, fun insect trivia. Okay. Okay, so um, here's the question for you. What was found in the joints of Zoophobus moria? That's a Zoophobus is a tenebrionid. It's a family of beetles or darkling beetles. Uh, this one is sometimes called the king worm because its larvae are um, 
really big and they're sometimes sold at pet stores as food for vertebrates like reptiles and um so a group of scientists in the university of kiel germany found something that i think you're going to find really interesting uh given some of your uh your sports related injuries uh in the in zoophobus moria's joints so is this on the inside of the body or the ex external or you can't tell me uh yeah, sure. I'll give you. Uh, yeah, it's on the inside of the um, mm -hmm. the limbs. Hmm. Uh, fungi. No, no. Um, it was in the. Uh, it was found. I'll give you another hint. It's uh, semi-solid. It was found in the femoral tibial joint. Mm -hmm. which is one of the bigger joints on the, uh, the, uh, the leg of this insect. You know, the joint, you know, the, the legs kind of taper off in size as you go from the body down to the tarsi, to the feet. Uh, they looked in the, the most proximate joint to the body, the femoral tibial joint, and they found this semi-solid material. Uh, cartilage? Close. And this is even better, the last hint, even better than polytetrafluoroethylene. Okay. I don't so, even know. Yeah, so polytetrafluoroethylene is the scientific name, the chemical name for Teflon. Oh. Yeah. So, so uh, a lubricant, it's not a lubricating agent, it's a... It's a lubricant, yeah. Okay. Uh, Constantine Nadine, I think Nadine. Um, and they inject that into all my joints? Well, hey, from your lips to Constantine's ears, uh, the title of the paper is Insects Use Lubricants to Minimize Friction and Wear in Leg Joints. This is in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And they found that the lubricating material inside the joints, this semi-solid uh, material is more it is uh more capable of reducing friction than teflon so that's kind of exciting right and i want beetlejuice in my knees there you go there you go that's the tm that trademark that beetlejuice you know there's still a bunch of questions they didn't quite nail the identification of the material. They had some preliminary assessment. Uh, I, I was reading through it. Um, it it's material science, so it, it was losing me a little bit. Um, I'll put a link to the article in the, um, in the text box, but it seems to be insoluble in water. Um, it's soluble in alcohol. Um, it was active uh, at room temperature for several days and didn't show signs of evaporation or degradation. The melting point is higher than 100 degrees C. This may not be something that, you know, we're going to be injecting in engines anytime soon, but um, it turns out they found it in another insect, in a cockroach. Maybe it was just one crawling around the lab. I don't know. But interesting, nonetheless, and uh, the potential for uh, 
use in other organisms is uh, interesting, right? If not exciting, especially for people who suffer creaky joints. Yeah, this is very exciting. Where do you find these fits, Matt? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. You know, <laughs> on the web, things come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, this one I found on Reddit. There's a, a thread on Reddit that I uh, hit every once in a while. And um, yeah, it was good. It jumped that out. is fun. I can't wait. Science is amazing. Yeah. And not all entomologists uh, study insects to kill them. Sometimes we study yeah. them to... I would be the first one to sign up for like on the early phases of research testing. <laughs> Get me the big needle and some tenebriated beetle juice. Yes. Well, um, that wraps up the fit. Last uh, segment, any um, events, any activities you got going on you want to plug before we sign off? Um, we, we are having the volunteer cooperate, cooperator network for adult corn worm trapping, and it's going to start uh, next week. So we have over 50 volunteers in Iowa, nice. and uh, I don't even know how many. If you added up all the states and provinces, uh, probably a thousand or more. So looking really forward to that with the help of Ashley Dean coordinating that effort. And yeah, so that's happening right now. And just can people still really- volunteer for that? Yeah, yeah, we have over 50 in Iowa. So if they want to volunteer, uh, how would they go about doing that? Well, in Iowa, we give the first 50 people traps for free, Um, but anyone could be a volunteer if they wanted to provide their own traps after that. Um, But it's just get a hold of Ashley Dean. Ashley Dean, I'm going to put her contact info in the box. A-D-E-A-N. A E D No A D E A N at IAstate.edu. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Rootworm. Rootworm trapping network. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you got going on, Matt? Hey, tomorrow the Iowa Honey Producers Association uh, field day is taking place out in uh, Mount Vernon at Ebert um, uh, Honey. Um, they're, uh, I don't know, do you call it a farm? Um, I guess so, it's an apiary. But anyway, I um, think you can find info on this at their website. It's a little bit last minute if you're trying to join, but um, I'll be out there as, as will Randall Cass, our extension uh, beekeeping expert. And he's going to be talking about ways to monitor survey for varroa mites in the um, hives. He's got a cool way to do that that isn't so invasive. And I'm going to talk uh, a couple of things. I'm going to talk about how prairie strips could be a source of um, honey or nectar that gets turned into honey for honeybees and improve uh, the productivity of honeybees in Iowa. And I'll also talk about the non honeybee bees and pollinators that can be found in Iowa. And what? Yeah, I have a little show and tell for people. Uh, I'm going to quiz them. I got some uh, pin specimens. I want to test their insect uh, ID acumen. So uh, hopefully they'll find it. I hope so. I hope they'll find it fun. Um, uh, one last shout out. I just got an update from Amy Toth and Randall Cass about the 
ongoing work we're doing with prairie strips and uh, they went out and did a honey uh, bee assessment at some farms where they're keeping bees and even with the expanded number of hives that they're keeping at the farms so they're up to 20 instead of the four that we have done in the past and they said yeah it looks great they're seeing very productive uh, colonies uh, they have to put on more boxes, more of the supers, the, the beekeepers call them, to account for the um, nectar that's being brought in to be turned into honey. So that's a good sign that um, our previous data that showed 24% increase in honey production when bees were given access to these prey strips can be done at a scale that's more like what beekeepers do, which is put out 20 some hives per site. So yeah, good news, even though uh, we're going through a drought and it's been super hot. That's exciting to hear. I'm glad the bees are having a good summer so far. At least somebody is, all right? Let's... <laughs> yeah. All right, should we wrap it up? Are we good? Did we do this? I think it was a good one, yeah. All right, well, this one's in the book. So see you next week. Yep, see ya. <laughs>